Hello everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast, brought to you by the Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Dr Jonathan Bargett, and I am a medical registrar in South East Scotland. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Murray Blackstock. He is a consultant in intensive care and anaesthesia. And today we are going to be talking about subarachnoid hemorrhage. So welcome, Dr Blackstock. Thank you, Johnny. Pleasure to be here. So let's get started. Why, why are we talking about this and why is it so important? So I think subarachnoid hemorrhage is one of these conditions which presents in a, a variety of ways and due to its epidemiology it affects people really out of the blue, like a lot of medical conditions, but often with no precipitating features or no warning. And it can really be a devastating event for people to happen, often in sort of the prime of their life and can have a, a long legacy in terms of the, the ongoing morbidity and mortality from it. And I think similar to a lot of conditions that we talked about in these conversations, it's a, a condition that bridges lots of different specialties and often gets looked after by multiple different people and specialties within, within the hospital. And often these patients come to critical care and their management then is coordinated from them. So I think it's a it's a really important condition and, and definitely one that shouldn't be, shouldn't be missed because there are interventions that can really prevent some of those later complications from hopefully happening. That's a great introduction, Dr. Blackstock. And I guess one of the things that I see as a medical trainee is patients who come in with that sudden history of thunderclap headache, headache, worst headache they've had in their lives that comes on within seconds. And that's the kind of presentation that we're, we're experienced with and look out for. And that's why it's a diagnosis that we are in tune to. And I guess one of the things that I'd like to ask you is, you know, how common is this and how does this affect the population and what kind of age group do we see this in? So in terms of how often we see it, there's about 10 per 100,000 people have it. And if you work that out per population of Scotland, it probably works out about 500 cases of subarachnoids that occur within a Scottish population. So not a huge incidence, but that's about two people a week potentially presenting to the Edinburgh hospitals. So again, not uncommon. And all those patients who have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, if they survive the initial event, will have to come to either Glasgow or Edinburgh to have a definitive treatment of that aneurysm, if that's what's discovered to be the cause. So it is a common presentation in that we'll see it in the hospitals in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And in terms of patients, it generally has a female preponderance, somewhere in the region of of three to two in most studies. And generally, people in their 40s and 50s is the highest age of presentation. So typical patient may be a a female in their 40s to 50s, although there is a broad spectrum and they can occur in people in teenagers and in the more elderly as well. So there is a common presentation, but like all these conditions, there are it can occur in people who you may not be expecting it as much. So I guess what, what I wanted to make clear for the listeners is we're not really talking about traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. We're talking about spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage that comes on from an undiagnosed or a, or a known aneurysm. And that's really important just to clarify for our listeners. What kind of processes occur that precipitate this kind of event? What kind of pathophysiological process prompts the sudden onset headache? So I think it's a good question, Johnny. And to go back to your previous point, I think 
the blood in the subarachnoid space can occur for a variety of reasons and in traumatic brain injury we'll see traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage but that doesn't have the sequelae of events that subarachnoid hemorrhage from an aneurysm normally does and the predisposing conditions for that are generally uh, an aneurysm uh, a so-called berry aneurysm but there are other causes of subarachnoid hemorrhage non-traumatic which are worth bearing in mind and Certainly mycotic aneurysms from bacterial endocarditis are something we see not infrequently, actually. So we're thinking about the, the typical patient who might present with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. That group's slightly different in that they may be slightly younger or may not fit that t- classical presentation. So mycotic aneurysms is the other thing to, to think about. But, but most are caused by berry aneurysms, about 80% of subarachnoid hemorrhages. They occur in the, the cerebral circulation and the sort of pathophysiology behind that is they normally occur at the, the junctions of arteries in the circle of Willis or in the supplying arteries to the, the circle of Willis. That's thought to be due to the shear stresses and the pressure forming at those junctions of the arteries. And normally in the anterior circulation, more frequently in the posterior circulation. And because of the, the lack of a, an intima in some of the vascular circulation, vascular arteries, and the cerebral circulation, they are more at risk of forming aneurysms. There are some pre-existing conditions which can increase your risk of that. Uh, patients with polycystic kidney disease is, is one group, or, or Marfan's or other connective tissue diseases, which would make the occurrence of these aneurysms more likely. So that's really important, just, I guess, from the history-taking perspective of when we're seeing patients, remembering that there are predisposing conditions and the family history is really important, past medical history of the conditions that you mentioned. I guess we can see patients coming to AMU or the emergency department and then going to the ICU, but not everybody goes to the ICU. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's the minority that go to the ICU. So again, sort of thinking of local numbers, if about 250 patients with subarachnoid would come to Edinburgh in a year, only about 20% of them would have to come to intensive care. So we grade subarachnoids by a variety of grading systems, but the most commonly used one is what's called the WFNS scale, which your listeners will be familiar with, but that's the World Federation of Neurosurgeons. And that's graded from, from one to five, one being the most favourable presentation, so GCS 15 to uh, five, which is the most unfavorable, so a GCS of uh, three to six, so, so less than seven. And so anyone that's a, a grade three or below would generally have to come to the ICU, and that's patients with a GCS 13 to 14 with, with some neurological deficit, and we anticipate that most of them would come to intensive care, whereas the majority, grades one and two, would often generally manage in, in the neurosurgical wards. So it's really important for listeners to, to hear that because it's easy to get a different perspective on pathology or a, a disease process depending on where you work. And I guess the key thing that I'd like to say now is we diagnose this primarily by imaging and CT without contrast is the definitive investigation that we would do initially. Can you give any thoughts on that and um, specifically the sensitivity and specificity in, in the time frames in which we see the patients just in relation to the time from presentation? So I think that that's key, Johnny. And obviously, as you alluded to earlier, the, the history is important and pretest probability of whatever investigation or imaging that you then get 
that CTE is the mainstay now, and ideally a CTE within six hours is the highest sensitivity, so almost 100% in, in most studies, 96 to 100%. So an early CTE within six hours, and as you said, a non-contrast CT uh, in the first instance. But what is uh, important to think about if you do have a high clinical suspicion and particularly if subarachnoid blood seen on that CT is that a CT angiogram gets done as well. Now, that in a central teaching hospital is something that's possible 24-7, but in a peripheral hospital or a district general, then doing the CT angio may not be possible. The benefit of that is obviously would, would hopefully demonstrate an aneurysm and helps with uh, planning any further intervention from the interventional radiologist. So the CT imaging initially, and then the role of, of lumbar puncture has evolved or changed with the advent of faster imaging and more readily available CT scans. So previously a lumbar puncture would have been a more predominant way of diagnosing subarachnoid or certainly part of the diagnostic process. But now, certainly in the initial stages, lumbar puncture is less frequently done and probably generally of benefit in people who present later where the CT is not done within six hours and an LP at that point may have more benefit if the CT is negative for any subarachnoid blood, then at that point a lumbar puncture could be considered to see if that has any features consistent with subarachnoid blood. Yeah, so certainly um, our listeners may be aware that in the patients who are maybe more well who are um, not showing any red signs, but that query of subarachnoid hemorrhage still remains, then if we decide that we could be ambulating them to come back for a lumbar puncture the next day, so more than 12 hours after their presentation, sometimes that's something that we would recommend to our patients. But it's interesting to know that the sensitivity obviously decreases with CT imaging the the longer from the time of the onset. Um, And you've, you've explained that really well, just in terms of the cerebral angiogram being all important. So we've, we've got our diagnosis. What do we do from, from there on, Dr. Blackstock? What treatments can we offer the, um, our patients and what do we do from there? So securing a diagnosis, as you say, is paramount. And then really our focus is on preventing the complications of the subarachnoid hemorrhage and primarily preventing re-bleeding from that aneurysm if that's thought to be or be nasty and to be the cause of, of the bleed. And that then needs secured. And... I think this is where subarachnoid hemorrhage is one of those interesting conditions and who has ownership of it in a sense, in that subarachnoid hemorrhage, by definition, is a stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke, but in the majority of hospitals in the UK, they're not looked after by stroke physicians. And actually, the specialty that has ownership really is the neurosurgical service. It's often diagnosed by the medical team or the emergency department team, and then managed by the neurosurgeons, although the actual intervention for definitive management is done by another group, the interventional radiologists. So I think the first instance is to obviously refer to the neurosurgical team as they'll be the ones then coordinating, in a sense, the, the ongoing management. And the priority is, is having the aneurysm secured. Now, again, what we're trying to do is prevent rebooting from that aneurysm, which is highest in the first 48 hours after the event. And that's why it's a sort of priority to try and secure the aneurysm. This has changed over the past 20 years in terms of what the predominant means of securing the aneurysm is. 
in that historically aneurysms would be clipped by the neurosurgical team using an, an open operation, but the role of interventional radiology and, and coiling has really become the predominant way of, of securing the aneurysms over the past 25 years. So now the vast majority, approaching 90% of aneurysms will be coiled or secured by the interventional radiology team. That is obviously coordinated through the, the neurosurgical team, speaking to the, the interventional radiologist to, to ensure that. And that is the priority in terms of managing that rebleeding risk. And there's other things that we need to think about as well, which we can go into in a bit more detail if you like. The message that I'm getting is there are lots of specialties involved in the care of the patient that comes in with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, and I guess depending on their conscious level, even more specialist input from yourselves is so crucial to that. And I guess what I'd just like to talk about a case that could easily come into the ICU. Can we talk about a patient that comes in with a diagnosed subarachnoid hemorrhage with a GCS that is um, low, so less than eight, and just kind of give your experience on, on how we manage a patient like that, if we could talk about their management that they might receive in the unit? Of course. So in the first instance, it's trying to work out why their GCS is low. As the other sort of common reason within the first 24, 48 hours is the development of hydrocephalus within this patient group. So an obstructive hydrocephalus due to the subarachnoid blood, which occurs in a, a group of these patients and estimates anywhere up to 20% of subarachnoids would have a degree of hydrocephalus. And that might be contributing to the poor GCS in these patients. So it's either the blood load from the subarachnoid, a rebleed or hydrocephalus. So an up-to-date CT scan, particularly uh, for a common presentation, if you like, is a patient that's come in and been actually not too bad in terms of GCS, but then it was then deteriorated within the, the assessment unit. And that may be due to hydrocephalus. So even if they've had a CT uh, on arrival demonstrating subarachnoid blood, they'll need another CT to, to make sure they haven't developed hydrocephalus because that's something that's readily treatable, again, by the neurosurgical team. So that patient would be referred to intensive care and likely the anaesthetic team as well to facilitate either intubation and ventilation, most likely, to ensure a safe transfer to the CT scanner and then to the intensive care unit. And if there is hydrocephalus, they'll require drainage of that by the neurosurgical team as a, an emergency procedure to try and relieve that pressure to a degree. So that patient would follow that pathway to the intensive care. And again, our focus is very similar to what the focus is in the, in the medical unit in somebody who's a, a better grade is to try and prevent rebleeding. And that is by trying to coordinate getting the aneurysm secured as soon as possible. That's generally during daylight hours, but also by blood pressure control and pre-securing the aneurysm, we try and maintain the systolic blood pressure less than 160 and also greater than 120 for perfusion, and that's uh, systolic blood pressure. So trying to prevent that re-bleeding, often using intravenous agents to try and prevent any blood pressure rises, which might precipitate another bleeding event from that, that aneurysm. So ideally, these patients, they should be managed and monitored in a, a critical care environment um, if we're dealing with that kind of management. Is that correct? So I think certainly... For those with a decreased conscious level who aren't GCS uh, 15 or at least 14 should be within either the critical care environment or a level one area if that facility exists within the hospital environment which with which we are working. And certainly that's what would happen within our institution is that there's a, a level one unit where 
these patients can be managed and observed by the, the neurosurgical team, but if they're requiring certainly intravenous antihypertensives, then that might necessitate a higher level of treatment. And so we have our patient that's come into the unit and they've had their interventional procedure, be it coiling or clipping, and we're managing their blood pressure. What, what kind of prognosis do we see in our patients and what kind of time frame are we talking about in recovery from the critical care unit in the first instance? So in a broad picture of subarachnoid hemorrhage, and again, we talked earlier about why this is important. We talk about a sort of a rule of thirds in a sense, and that a third of patients that have a subarachnoid hemorrhage won't survive that event. So either they won't survive the initial event and won't make it to hospital, or they won't survive the discharge. A third will make a full recovery, so return to their activities of daily living. And then a third will have some ongoing disability. And that is sort of broadly been represented in most studies over the past sort of 10, 15 years. And within the intensive care, obviously, we see a subset of patients that may do more poorly than that in terms of death or, or disability. But depending on what the sequelae of it are, then we'd anticipate that the majority of our patients would we'd hope survive to at least uh, ICU discharge and hospital discharge, although that might be with ongoing disability. Although the grade five subarachnoid hemorrhages, the ones that present with really a, a large blood load, they can often have a, a very poor outcome in, in a relatively short time frame on admission to the unit and to intensive care. But that, that group that have been secured the issues with them we find are that the subarachnoid blood causes a sort of litany of complications, both intracranially and extracranially, which can really affect patients for weeks after the initial event. It's really important to get a feel for the kind of experience that a patient who comes in with this disease might have, because when we're talking to families, we need to prepare them for what could happen and uh, give them an idea or an insight into the, the seriousness of the situation. And I guess for our listeners there, it's more important just to, to get a feel for that. But obviously the specialties that are involved would be neurosurgical colleagues and, and yourselves. But that's really important and really helpful, Dr. Blackstock, just to, to give your insight into that. One of the things I'd like to ask about is, are there any common pitfalls that we, we experience or you experience in referrals or presentations with these patients? And how can we make the referral to the critical care team easier in terms of what you want to know when we're referring these patients to you? So I think in general, people are very well attuned to this as a diagnosis and a presentation. And as you said earlier, there's that sort of classic history of the sudden onset, severe headache with potentially a sentinel headache from previously. And I think it's just been cognizant of the slightly more unusual presentations of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And uh, like we mentioned earlier, that slightly different patient groups, so patients with endocarditis who then develop neurological symptoms because it's a mycotic aneurysm, or that patient that doesn't follow that exact pathway of presenting with the sort of the classical features. And similarly, patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, say, or collapse, which is presumed to be of a, a cardiac origin, and we will see not infrequently that they actually have had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which has caused their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or similar. So it's being mindful that there may be another diagnosis as well as that presentation of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and some of these patients may need a CT. And similarly, seizures of unclear etiology, 
subarachnoid hemorrhage can cause seizures in, in some of these people. So having that in the back of your mind that this may be subarachnoid hemorrhage in those sort of slightly unusual presentations. That's really helpful advice. And I'm sure that our medical trainees who are listening to this will really take heed to that message because it's, it's such a common presentation and we see patients with um, referrals of acute onset headache uh, very commonly. I guess I'd like to wrap up now. And what, what would your, your take-home messages be for our listeners today, Dr. Buxton? So I think this is a, a condition that really does have a devastating effect on, on patients and families and that it occurs, as we said earlier, in patients in their 40s and 50s who have otherwise been well and has that really long legacy of potential disability. And that the priority really is communication with the, the relevant teams, and that's the neurosurgeons and ourselves in critical care, if there's any concerns. And that even after the initial management of these patients, so we see patients who are managed with uh, an intervention, coiling or, or clipping, generally coiling, who seem to be doing fine, but then can develop the sort of later complications of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we haven't talked about vasospasm or delayed cerebral ischemia, which is probably one of the more devastating sequelae of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that will occur predominantly about seven to 10 days after the initial ictus but can cause multiple areas of cerebral infarction and can really cause a lot of ongoing disability and, and, and often even death in these patients who have been managed correctly and promptly had aneurysm secured, but then deteriorated at that sort of later stage. So I think it's been cognizant that even after that initial period, even up to three weeks after the initial event, that these patients are still at risk of deterioration and they're sort of not out of the danger area for a significant period of time after that event. That's really helpful. I guess that's something just that we need to bear in mind when we when we think a patient's pathology has been secured, as you say, we just need to be aware that complications can arise, can happen at a later stage. And that's been really useful just as that reminder. Um, so I, I've, I've learned a lot from uh, this discussion, Dr. Blackstock, and um, I guess I'd just like to say thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for your time. And I hope our listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. So once again, thank you very much. Uh, no problem, Johnny. My pleasure. And I'd, I'd just like to send both the listeners to the guidance that we can offer. And there's a really good, nice guideline on management of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And if you want to give your feedback to the podcast team, then feel free to use the Twitter or Instagram pages from the college and give us your, your thoughts. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.